Gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we praise your name for this opportunity to gather around your word. And we ask that as we open up this part of the Bible, part of the Bible that might be unfamiliar to us, we ask that you would speak to us and that we might trust you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, you don't have to spend long in this world to realise the extent of injustice, violence and wrongdoing that takes place. You just flick on the TV and you see it, don't you? Terrorists in Paris, terrorists in Brussels, Martin Place, coward punches in King's Cross, uh, women killed by their spouses regularly, you see that. Uh, I saw on the news earlier, the, was it last month, a murder in Ingleburn? And then I googled murder Ingleburn and it's not just the only one. It happens all around us, doesn't it? And it's not an experience that's unique to us at all. You know, you just go through history and it's an extremely common human experience. And at a much worse level, you think uh, genocide that's occurred, Auschwitz, Idi Amin, Stalin, Rwanda, Pol Pot, it's everywhere. The list seems endless, doesn't it? And when you go closer to home, much closer to home in your own life, you know people yourself who are the victims of injustice, violence and conflict. Uh, people that have been violently robbed, attacked, and even attacked by the ones who should love them. You, you know of them. But it might not just be at arm's length. An observer, as it were. Uh, it might be you. Uh, you might be the victim of injustice, violence or conflict. It's something that we're not immune from. Now, in Habakkuk, we're not told if the prophet Habakkuk is a victim of violence himself or just an observer of it, of what's happening around him. But have a look from halfway through verse 3 of chapter 1. Halfway through verse 3. This is his experience. Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore the law is paralysed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. Our experience of violence and strife, he shares. It's a similar experience of the prophet. It's not a new phenomenon in our world and he has this experience as well. Now, before we go any further and examine this issue of violence and conflict that he observes, I thought we'd just pause for a moment because many of us won't know much about Habakkuk for good reason. And uh, we'll just see what we do know. Okay, so a little pause. Because the truth is, we don't know much about Habakkuk at all. Uh, chapter 1, verse 1. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet received. Uh, frankly, this is very different to other things we hear in the Bible about prophets. Uh, Isaiah, we hear this. I've got, got this one on the screen. Chapter 1, verse 1. The vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw during the reign of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. It's very particular, isn't it? We know a lot about him. We know we can place him in history, place him in a location. Ezekiel, it's even more specific. In the 13th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day, while I was among the exiles by the Kibar River, the heavens were open and I saw the visions of God. You know, you know exactly the day and the place that this happened. Uh, but sometimes uh, prophets are mentioned elsewhere in the Bible and so you can learn more about them. That's not the case with Habakkuk either. So we don't know much about him from the book. We don't know much about him from elsewhere. But from the rest of Habakkuk's prophecy, it's clearly lived during the period of the Babylonian resurgence, that they're gaining power as a superpower. Uh, 
which took place at the end of the 6th century BC. And look down at verse 6, and there's mention of the Babylonians as the Assyrian domination of Palestine was coming to an end. The Assyrians are leaving, the Babylonians are coming in. And in our Bible reading of 2 Kings, chapter 24, we learnt of the extent of the Babylonian conquest, just down at the end of verse 7, I think it was, uh, from the streams of Egypt, the Wadi, uh, the river valleys, that is, all the way to the Euphrates. So they're conquering the land. So the Babylonians are there. It was a superpower. Now, let's, I think we've got a map. I've got a picture of the map. So there's our superpower, the Babylonian Empire. So it's dominating at the moment. And we also learn from our Bible reading in verse 2 of 2 Kings 24 that the prophets of the Lord had been active in speaking about the Babylonians. And what Habakkuk does is speak about his experience and what's happening during this time of this Babylonian resurgence. We're also told that in verse 1 that Habakkuk received this prophecy. Now, the idea of receiving it isn't that he was given it. You know, here's the book of Habakkuk and he, he gets given it. The idea of receiving it is that he was given a vision. It's his view on things the view that God has given him. And as a prophet of God, this prophecy is God's word to his people. That it's at the same time as the word of the prophet Habakkuk, it's the word of God. And as God's word to his people in the past, it's been inscripturated, written down, and so it's God's word to those who hear it later. And it's just an amazing thing that the way that God uses the word of the prophet, from the point of view of the prophet, as his word, as God's word. And so we get to hear it now, God's word to us. Well, what are we going to learn about this observation of violence and strife in the world? So back to this issue of violence and strife. What do people do when they see violence and strife? What's the first thing you do? I think the first thing you do is you identify the perpetrators and you want to bring them to justice. You know, you call the police. There are people you call to actually find out who the perpetrators are and you identify the victim and you try to help the victim. You know, when you experience that kind of injustice and violence, that's what you do. And we spend a huge amount of money and energy in our community doing just that, stopping violence, bringing justice, helping the victims. On a large scale, you've got defence forces, the UN, the police, the legal system, all kinds of things. Billions of dollars are spent helping victims and prosecuting perpetrators. But all of that's after the fact. How do you stop a perpetrator before they commit a crime? How do you stop a perpetrator before they commit a crime? In one sense, that's what security agencies are trying to do around the world, aren't they? You know, terror cell. How do you, how do you stop someone doing something wrong before they've started doing it? How, how do you make that happen? Now, I don't want to spoil a movie but it might it might just happen, okay? Uh, it's an old movie, right? It's 2006, and it's not a it's not a it's, it's not like um, Shawshank Redemption, okay? Has anyone here not seen Shawshank Redemption, the movie? Okay, I, lips are sealed. Okay, but this movie, Deja Vu, okay, is the movie. It's Denzel Washington in it, and uh, so it's a spoiler alert. If you want to plug your ears, you can. Okay, uh, it's about a bomb attack that happens on a ferry uh, with servicemen and women, and the authorities are trying to prevent the attack. Uh, now, in the movie, they find a way of seeing into the past exactly four days, six hours and three minutes into the past. And so they're able to use that information to actually stop the bomb happening. Now, it's got all those crazy things that happen in movies about you know time travel and you know all that kind of crazy stuff that goes on, those confusing things that take place. 
Wouldn't it be great if you could press rewind, go back four days, maybe even four minutes would do the trick, go back four days and fix up something you've done in the past? Just think for a moment. Think for a moment about something that you've done or something that's happened to you. You think, if I could press rewind and do it again, I'd do it again. It'd be fantastic, wouldn't it? A couple of years back, there was that brother out from Ireland who King hit his his brother. And you just think, you know, 10 minutes later, I'm sure he wishes you just press rewind. Just rewind 10 minutes and do it all again. Now, here's the difficulty. You press rewind on your button, go back four hours. And I'm kind of thinking, wait a minute, I want to go back a bit. You know, I want to go back six hours before that. And then you go, I want to go four days before that. And then someone, and so we all just keep on pressing rewind. Someone wants to keep on rewinding. When, when's that kind of process going to stop? When are people going to stop wanting to rewind? I, I take it you keep on going back and you go back and you go, Adam goes, oh, rewind. Eve goes, oh, rewind. Do you know what I mean? Like, you're back to, well, wouldn't the world be better if we're back in Genesis 2? That's what's going to happen, isn't it? So that feeling that you have, it's a pretty common human feeling of wanting to press rewind. Well, as big as the presence of injustice, so he sees the injustice, he sees the the perpetrators, he sees the victims. Uh, For Habakkuk, the problem is bigger than just wanting to press rewind. And it's less easily fixed. You see, there's a problem with God. Habakkuk's complaint is about God's inaction in the midst of this violence and conflict. Have a look at verse 2 and verse 3. So, yep, violence is a problem, but why is God letting it happen? So verse 2, how long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen or cry out to you? Violence, but you don't save. Why do you, look at, uh, why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? You see, the big issue for Habakkuk is, well, yeah, he can see the violence, but God, what about you? You know, you're making me look at this. You can do something about it. What's the story? How can God just sit on the sidelines and allow what is happening around Habakkuk to take place? How can this loving, all-powerful God allow this to happen? And as far as Habakkuk is concerned, God is not listening. He should be stepping in and save when he should and not tolerating this wrongdoing. And it seems that God's standards, his justice, has slipped way below that of even Habakkuk. You know, Habakkuk thinks, well, I can see what's going wrong and I want to do something about it. What about you, God? And the same could be said for our world, doesn't it? You know, how could God's standards of justice fall below ours? We spend huge amounts of effort, time, money, energy, helping the victims, prosecuting the perpetrators. What about God? You might have heard friends say that. You know, you believe in an all-powerful God. If God allows that kind of injustice, then frankly, I don't want to believe in that God. Now, that's a big problem. The problem gets even bigger for Habakkuk. You might think it's already a big issue. You know, you've got victims, you've got perpetrators, you've got to deal with the justice, then you've got God, why why, God, why have you done something about this? But the problem is even bigger because of the surprising actions of God. 
that the situation that Habakkuk is describing is one where God has acted. And this is very surprising. And it's clear from verse 5 to verse 11, it is Yahweh speaking, the Lord. We are hearing what actions God has taken. And what we see here is completely surprising. You see, God isn't on the sidelines. He has acted. God is the one who has brought this violence and conflict. Let me say it again. God is the one who has brought this violence and this particular conflict and strife. And he's using the Babylonians to bring his justice to his people. Have a look at verse 5. Look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed, for I am going to do something in your days that you would not believe, even if you were told. God I'm going to do something among you that even if you were told, you wouldn't believe it, that this is going to be the case. What is it? Verse 6. I am raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwelling places, not their own. That the violence, lawlessness and strife that Habakkuk is experiencing is because God has raised up these Babylonians to sweep across the whole world and bring judgment. Uh, Now have a look at how the Babylonians are the ones who have brought this experience. They're the ones. So... Uh, We're going to link up a few things here in the text to see how it is the Babylonians. In verse 9, we see the Babylonians as being bent on violence. Verse 2 has Habakkuk observing the violence. Habakkuk's question in verse 3, why do you tolerate wrong? If you look down, it's repeated in verse 13 about the Babylonians. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? And the moral assessment of the wicked and righteous in verse 4 comes out in verse 13. Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? And so you've got this description of this violence and strife. It's exactly what the Babylonians are bringing about. But what's God doing? And this is just a complete surprise. Complete surprise. Because God knows that they're evil. It's clear. Look at verse 7. Okay? Have a look at these little assessments. They're a feared and dreaded people. They are a law to themselves and promote their own honour. See, God doesn't think the Babylonians are all right at all. Verse 8, their horses are swifter than leopards, fiercer than wolves at dust. Their cavalry gallops headlong. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like a vulture swooping to devour. They all come bent on violence. Their hordes advance like a desert wind and gather prisoners like sand. They mock kings and scoff at rulers. They laugh at at all fortified cities by building earthen ramps. They capture them. Then they sweep past like the wind and go on. And God's assessment, guilty people whose own strength is their God. You see, no point does God think, oh yeah, the Babylonians, they're awesome. And uh, my people, they need to be uh, uh, judged. And I'm going to bring out the Babylonians because they're fantastic. That's not the picture at all. The Babylonians are terrible. They're terrible. At no point does God think these people are good, but he has raised them up to punish his own people who've turned their backs on him. Verse 12. O Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One, we will not die. O Lord, you've appointed them to execute judgment. You, O Rock, you have ordained them to punish Habakkuk's totally aware of what God's doing. 
He's aware of the Babylonians being the ones who are bringing God's judgment. And we saw it back in the 2 Kings reading. Uh, verse 3, 2 Kings 24, verse 3. Surely these things happened to Judah according to the Lord's command in order to remove them from his presence because of the sins of Manasseh and all that he had done. And God is bringing judgment through the Babylonians. And this then brings us to the heart of Habakkuk's complaint. How on earth can God allow that? So it's not just the violence. It's not that God allows that. But God's bringing the Babylonians of all the people. Of all the people to do this, he's allowing the Babylonians to bring this judgment. How can God let a more evil nation bring judgment on his own people? Verse 13. This is the complaint to God. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous, these Babylonians? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? It should be us judging the Babylonians. We have this illustration then from fishing, verse 14. You have made people like the fish in the sea, like the sea creatures that have no ruler. Kind of everyone gets on doing their own thing. The, the, the wicked foe pulls up all of them with hooks. He catches them in his net. He gathers them up in his dragnet. And so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore he sacrifices to his net and burns incense to his dragnet. For by it his net he lives in luxury and enjoys the choicest food. Is he to keep on emptying his net, destroying nations without mercy. And it's this image of the Babylonians having the dragnet of collecting up people, of living in luxury off the benefits of this violence and strife that they've brought to others. And there's no escape. This isn't rod and reel stuff, you know, kind of like pick one fish out at a time. This is kind of like they just destroy everything in their wake. They're violent, merciless destroyers who don't worship God and live in luxury as a result of their actions. How can God be using them for anything? Surely God's judgment should be on them. Surely God should be acting against them. If God is active, why doesn't he do something about them? Habakkuk verse two, chapter 2, verse 1. And this is what Habakkuk does. He's going to stand there and he's, going to, he's given his complaint to God. He says, I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I'll look to see what he will say to me, what answer I am to give to this complaint. That's Habakkuk's complaint. He's now levelled it at God. He's identified this injustice. He's identified God's inaction in that, but his action in bringing judgment. And he says, God, what are you going to do about it? How can you use this evil people for your purposes? Now, we're going to see the answer to some of those questions after morning tea and tomorrow morning. But I want you to notice a few things on the way through. First of all, that the prophet is not scared to think theologically and think hard about really difficult questions. Really difficult questions. And it's a model for us how we should think Christianly. You know, how does my view of God affect the world? How does it affect the things that I'm involved in? In light of how God acts in our world, have I understood him properly? Have I understood his plans and purposes? And they're great questions to ask. And that's something you should be wrestling together, you know, in your Bible study groups as a church. You're thinking through how my knowledge of God affects how I live and the world around me. But this whole issue of evil, it's not new in the Bible. 
When it comes to evil and wickedness, God is not on the sidelines but working out his purposes through it. You see, we think um, when people come to morality, they have different taste buds in how they relate to things. Uh, And there are two that more or less everyone has. Uh, People have more than that. And when you have have, uh, the conversations our society is having at the moment about gay marriage, uh, about structure of family, all those kinds of things, almost everyone has these two, which are they want things to be fair and they don't want anyone to be hurt. They don't necessarily think, oh, I want to do what God says or I want to um, have a a concept of uh, virtue or something like that. But at the very basic, you kind of think, very basic level, you think there's nothing greater, surely, than making sure we eliminate evil, <coughs> that no one gets hurt and things are fair. It's a really basic kind of level of justice, isn't it? It's just really simple. You know, and so why doesn't God have that as a value? You know, if more or less everyone in a community thinks, well, we just want to make sure things aren't unjust. It's really basic. Why, why doesn't God have that as a value? For God, there is something greater that means he does not stop wickedness in its tracks. That's really hard to accept. How on earth could there be anything greater than stopping injustice? But for God, there's something greater than even stopping injustice in its tracks immediately. He allows evil. Evil is evil. It's bad. It's not good. But he allows evil to continue, but uses it to achieve his purposes. Think back to the story of Joseph. You know, he's thrown into the the well, sold by his brothers. And we're told how what they intended for evil against their brother, God had intended for good. He had plans and purposes for Joseph to be down there in Egypt. And the surprising thing is, the way in which God acts through the wickedness to achieve his purposes. Now, in Habakkuk, have a look with me. Verse 5, chapter 1, verse 5. God says this. Look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed, for I'm going to do something in your days that you would not believe even if you were told. That is, I'm going to use a wicked nation to achieve my purposes. You wouldn't believe it, would you? Turn with me to Acts chapter 13. And I want you to prick your ears up. And if you look there in Acts chapter 13, from verse 27, prick your ears up. Because that verse is quoted in chapter 13 of Acts. We're going to pick up the speech halfway through as Paul is talking about the events that have taken place in the death of Jesus. If you think about Jesus for a moment, injustice, a nation that is set against his people, surely God would stop him. In fact, if God stopped what was happening, it would be a clear indication that Jesus was indeed God's son. You think about the accusations and statements made about Jesus on the cross. You know, come down from the cross and then we will believe you're the Christ. There's a view of God that says, that if God is here, then he'll save you. He wouldn't let this wickedness happen. 
How on earth could he allow that to take place? Acts 13, verse 27. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognise Jesus, yet in condemning him they fulfilled the words of the prophet that are read every Sabbath. Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. When they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he was seen by those who had travelled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They're now his witnesses to our people. We tell you the good news. What God promised our fathers, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus, as it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have become your father. The fact God raised him from the dead, never to decay, is stated in these words. I'll give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. So it is stated elsewhere, you will not let your holy one see decay. When David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his fathers and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead will not see decay. Therefore, my brothers, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is justified from everything you could not be justified from by the law of Moses. Take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I'm going to do something in your days that you would never believe, even if someone told you. And as Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further about these things on the Sabbath day. Who would have thought that God's own son would come into the world, that God's own son would be the victim of violence and strife, that God would not intervene even for that? Who would have thought? Jesus was mocked for it, wasn't he? That that wasn't the case. He was mocked. It seemed too unbelievable that God would allow his son to die on a cross. So unbelievable that therefore he cannot be God's son. And yet God is saying, even if I told you, you wouldn't believe it. And Paul's saying, don't let that be you. Don't let this event that looks so horrible and terrible pass you by because this is actually the salvation of God happening in the Lord Jesus Christ. We think the most important thing in the world is the establishment of justice and removal of wickedness now, right now. Now, if you press the rewind button, you get back to Genesis 2, don't you? Why didn't God just wind it all up then and just stop then? And you kind of think all of the things that have happened in our world, the injustice that's happened, for whatever reason, God has good reason to allow the events of our world to take place because he has a greater purpose in mind of establishing a people that belong to him. We don't think it's worth it. We think, press rewind, don't ever press play. But God is fulfilling his purpose in gathering together people around his son Jesus. And God is working out his purpose. He's not on the sidelines. And however unlikely it appears, God is establishing his kingdom. And quite frankly, it can be frustrating. It's okay to call out, how can this be in the circumstances you're in? It's okay to be angry at the injustice. 
It's okay to be confused because there are sometimes there's injustice, not because of any wickedness that you have done in the situation that Habakkuk's in, but God's clearly bringing his judgment on people because they're wicked. But bad things happen to people even though they've done nothing wrong. But it's okay to call out to God, be frustrated by that, and trust him in the midst of that. Uh, You no doubt have been the victim of suffering and violence And it's okay to call out to God and ask him because it's difficult for us to see how great his purposes are. And at the end of the day, we do need to trust him. Now we're going to hear God's response after morning tea. What's God going to do? What's God going to do about the violence and strife in the world? And we'll see his answer to Habakkuk's complaint.